everyone, um, welcome to this month's episode of the Cyber Threat Briefing here with the guys at Cloud. Um, as every other month, we are joined on this episode by Hugh Rayner. Hello. And we're also joined by Aaron Dalton as well. Hi, everyone. In we go for June's episode. A little bit delayed this week. We had InfoSec on last week, so push this back uh, a week. But there's quite a lot to cover. Two important things to cover, actually. So we're going to go for a discussion around the essentially worldwide impact of the movie breach. So we're not new to this news or anything like that, but this threat briefing is we haven't talked about this as it happened since we uh, last got together and did the briefing. So we're going to talk about the movie breach, what it means for organizations and what the latest tactics are for future prevention. And then we're also going to talk about the current iPhone zero days and the triangulation spyware that's going around at the minute. So if you listen to nothing else other than this first few minutes, update your iOS devices follow the update re- regime and otherwise we'll dive into the detail of that what it means and we'll cover off what mobile spyware is and, and so on and so forth so they're the topics of discussion for this week and guys maybe we'll get straight into it uh, if that's okay good so we'll start on the move it breach so the move it breach happened or has been happening for some time now but publicly known about since sort of mid-june time it's a, it's attributed to the clock ransomware group um so what they've been doing is exploiting the movie software and we'll get into the how the attack works in in a couple of questions time uh, but they've been exploiting that software on mass to compromise organizations data and there's some pretty big brand names in there as well then the first question i'll cover which is what is move it so if you've not heard of move it which you probably will have done now since it's been in the news quite a lot um, but essentially it's a file transfer solution developed by a company called uh, ip switch they're now part of progress software and what it essentially does is, as it sounds, so it encrypts files and uses secure file transfer protocols to, to transfer that data. It's got a web front end, it's got a REST API, and there's also a command tool, you know, command line options to inter- interact with it as well for uploading and downloading data. So a lot of organizations are using it to move files, uh, essentially, between businesses, between business units, that kind of thing, between businesses and consumers and their customers, business to business, that kind of thing. So it's quite a popular piece of software. It's used quite extensively across all industries from what we can see as well. So to move us forward, I'm going to bring Hugh in. Uh, and Hugh, can you just talk us through what the attack itself is? How does it work? Um, and what's kind of happening here in the background? Yeah, sure. So it's quite an interesting little um, a chain of, of, of attack here with a few sort of safeguards as well from the attacker's standpoint. So starts off as a SQL injection attack in the in the MoveIt software. And then that installs a, a web shell called human2.aspx. And then what that web shell does is before it, it executes anything, it looks for a header in the request, xsilock comment. And that's basically got a password in it. And if you don't supply that header with the right value, you just get a, a 404. But if you are, you know, the attacker that's deployed this, you provide the correct value there. That can then go on to, you know, steal file metadata from the file transfer service, things like MySQL sessions. And crucially here is um, the ability for it to steal the Azure blob session tokens and API keys and and everything there. And obviously with with Azure um, blob storage, if you have, you know, those session keys and um, and the secret keys as well, you've got access to, um, you know, all the data that's stored in those blobs. So that's the the really big impact here. Okay, so we're talking about a, a pretty severe vulnerability, right, that gives people access to quite a lot of stuff. And I guess it depends on how a, someone's cloud instance is set up as to whether they can go further than just the, the move it software environment itself. So if it's a shared environment or subscription, everything's running off the similar kind of keys and access and things like that, then chances are you, they're going to get quite far. 
Good. Okay, thanks for the update on the the attack. Aaron, I mentioned right at the start that there's quite, quite far-reaching, this, and there's quite some fairly big brands in there and across a lot of different industries. Why is the breach so big in this instance? What, you know, what kind of level of exposure are we talking about here? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it's big in this case because it's a widely used file transfer product. So it impacts hundreds of organizations. And actually, the impact is potentially even larger than hundreds of organizations because if you've got third parties that are also using the MoveIt file transfer application, they might be handling data that you've sent to them and they might be impacted and it just kind of snowballs and suddenly you've got a very large number of both organizations and individuals that are impacted by this breach. So I think initially Zealous were the first company to report this as a, uh, to, to find this problem and report it as an issue and they're a payroll company. So they process HR records and payroll records for hundreds of organizations. So immediately you've potentially got the impact of lots of organizations just through one company that uses this MoveIt software being impacted. But we've heard in the news many other large organizations being impacted, everything from oil and gas companies like Shell through to government organizations, through to universities, the BBC, Medibank, big UK companies like BA and Boots have said that they're impacted. The full scale of exactly how much customer data or personal data is within that or the the extent of the data breaches is not entirely clear in all cases yet because it would very much depend on the use case but yeah we've definitely got a very broadly impacting issue here the listeners are likely sat here thinking well am i impacted so as a regular organization they're going to be impacted do they have to be using move it does it have a have a potential repercussion here yeah as i mentioned it Sort of no. The, the key thing is to understand that just because you don't mo- use MoveIt doesn't mean you are not impacted. You need to reach out to your suppliers who might process things on your behalf. So Zealous is a good example. If you're using a payroll provider and they they um, do things as a, a third party, a partner for yourselves, it might be worth reaching out to them, doing a bit of due diligence to say, hi, do you use MoveIt? Have you confirmed to Can you confirm to us that you don't use it? Or if you do use it, what are you doing to take care of it? Is our data impacted? And we've had that ourselves, even at Shorecloud, right? Some of our partners have reached out to us to confirm that we don't use the software. So I think this is a, a really good thing for other organizations to do to their suppliers as well. Just reach out, say, hey, are, are you using MoveIt? What have you done to counteract it? So if you, just because you're not using it doesn't mean you're not impacted. It really helps to make sure you have a good understanding of who processes your data. So records of processing, data flows for the data within your organization, those sorts of things, which will really help for this attack as well as other attacks in this case. Feels like the kind of software that would be shadow IT related. Like, you know, someone sat in a payroll part, I need to get some stuff moved out pretty quickly. What can I do? All right, I'll just spin this up in Azure on my own credit card, throw a lot of data in and so on and so forth. So there is potential that, yes, you can ask the questions, but organizations, unless they've got a good handle on what's being used, they may not have the full picture, even they might not know exactly what's going on. Good. So let's say someone is using move it and they want to figure out how to mitigate it here what what can they do what's their uh, what's their next steps here how do they get from hey we've got a problem to we fix the problem yeah sure so obviously today we're in the fortunate place that um we you know we've got an effective patch for this vulnerability the folks that have been investigating this in the community you know have, have sort of validated that the patch doesn't appear to be working even against you know some of the more the more advanced compromises where people have you know developed it further to for things like remote remote command execution so yes certainly the patch is is your best option obviously there are likely to be some environments where for whatever reason you can't patch um we see that quite frequently 
given the sort of data, large files and things like that, that we're seeing typically being used with MoveIt, I'd err on the side of caution myself. Suggest, you know, if you are unsure and you can get by with disabling the service until you're at a point where you can you know, migrate to a different provider or get the patch you know, installed, that's probably what, what I'd recommend um, at a high level. There are also some other things that you can do that have uh, you know varying levels of, of efficacy here. Disabling outbound web ports is a good one to do. You know, if you get rid of ATM 443, that's going to have a significant impact on this being exploited remotely. If you can't do that, you know, investigate using a web application file or something like that. Something that just returns a, an error message or, or something different if someone tries to access the web ports on this. I guess crucially, the difference between you know disabling the web access versus disabling the service entirely is that if you you know if you just block that on the, the firewall or the server itself, you're still going to maintain access um, to the other protocols, you know FTP, SFTP. So you're still going to have some level of usability of the service. You're just sort of bypassing the affected services here that either are used in this exploit. Okay, excellent. Thanks, you. So it's in the list of priority, patch it. And if you can't patch it, then do some mitigations, which include get rid of the bits that we know are vulnerable, like the web front end, falling back to more traditional handlined options for, for interacting with it, or failing all that. If you're really struggling, then you start to restrict access to it quite aggressively. And in some cases, I think there's been uh, some organizations that just basically took it offline for the foreseeable future until, until a later date. But obviously, thankfully, we've got the, the patch available now, so that, that shouldn't be an issue at this point. Aaron, I'm going to bring you in here. If you are a user of MoveIt, let's say you have patched it, how do you know, looking back, if you've been compromised? What are the indicators here for a, a compromise having happened already? Yeah, that's actually, that's a really interesting one in this case. It's probably worth mentioning that the, the Clock Ransomware group, historically, they've been known to do ransomware. And ransomware has pretty obvious indicators of compromise. You know, laptops are locked out or, you know, systems have a message saying that they've been encrypted and you need to send um, a ransom to Clock. However, they stated that they're starting to change tact here. And this is, I think, one of the first instances where we're really seeing that change in approach from the group in that they aren't encrypting laptops or systems or devices anymore. They've decided they want to move towards data theft extortion. So they're not bothered about encrypting your systems. They're more bothered about stealing data, telling you they've stolen the data, and then extorting money out of you. Otherwise, they're going to release that data into the wild, which is why we're not 100% sure on exactly the quantities of accounts that have been compromised, companies that have been compromised, because Klopp have kept that information to themselves whilst they try and extort the companies. And then in some cases, hopefully in most cases, the companies themselves have fessed up and said, look, you know, we have been impacted by this. We think this many users are impacted. So the indicators of compromise aren't necessarily obvious. Uh, you, you haven't got, you know, flashing alarm bells going off everywhere. So you really need to dig in and understand, actually, are we seeing unexpected connections to these services? Have we seen unexpected data exiting the organization? Because otherwise, you may not know that you have been compromised unless you've been contacted by the group directly. They have started publishing a list as of a couple of weeks ago of the organizations that they say have been impacted. And you can go and look that up online to see the list just because they want to start putting a bit of pressure onto companies that haven't paid the ransom or may not have been informed, you know, they haven't been able to get into contact. However, I would always caution that just because the ransomware group haven't contacted you doesn't mean you're not affected. You know, your data might be with a third party. You may have been considered too small for them to warrant contacting. You know, they're, they're ultimately, whilst they're a ransomware group, 
they are a business. So they're only going to go after the, the big companies that they think they can extort money from. It's one way you're actually going to have to do a bit of deep diving. There's no really obvious indicators here. You're going to have to look at the data that's been exiting your organization. Absolutely. And I think if you, on a technical side of things, if you do see human2.aspx, then that's one of the indicators that the web shell is installed uh, and running. So that, therefore, that'll be a fairly obvious sign that um, you have been uh, compromised or that the system you're using has been compromised. Does that, is this throw an interesting question up? That they moved away from ransomware as a business model uh, and trying to get payments through that. Does that indicate that people are less people are paying for it than, than anticipated? I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing that out there as a, a hypothetical question at this stage. We have to down the data on what Klopp are seen or doing, but it does indicate a kind of a shift in, in how they operate ultimately. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I suppose it, it does sort of hint that perhaps ransomware is starting to be a bit less lucrative than these groups would suggest. We're only really seeing this start with, with Klopp. We're not seeing, well, actually, let's take a step back and say, actually, data theft is big business. It, al- it always has been. But it's interesting, I suppose, to compare and contrast. Maybe it's becoming more lucrative than ransomware. So it could be because ransomware's decreasing in, in revenue streams for these organized crime groups, or it could just be that actually they want to open up additional streams of revenue. They're a business. They're going to do what they think works. Maybe it's a you know, trial and error thing. So I don't know the answer. I don't work in that sector of uh, organized crime. However, it's certainly something to watch out for. Data theft has always been big business. Now it looks like it's beginning to be turned into a profitable business for ransomware groups to go towards. Indeed, it could be, yeah. Um, so we covered the business side of things and what, what businesses should do. But what about consumers themselves? If you are of one of the organizations that's been affected, what do you do need to do on a consumer level to be comfortable that your data is, and let's be honest, you're kind of powerless at this point. You've kind of trusted an organization with your data. They might then have been compromised, not through their own fault. Ultimately, it's just the kind of way the world works now. But as a consumer, the things that you can do to, to kind of give yourself some peace of mind. Um, and Aaron, maybe bring you in and Hugh, if you've got any comments at the end, can, can bring you in as well there. Yeah, actually, there's two halves to this because the consumer side is very much dependent on what the organization doing. So actually, what should the organization be doing? Well, the organization should have investigated if they believe they're compromised, investigated what's happened, understood the breadth of the impact. They'll then need to inform the relevant authorities, depending on the jurisdiction you live in. But here in the UK, we've got the Information Commissioner's Office. You must report data breaches within 72 hours to them with an initial notification so you should be doing this investigation as an organization and then potentially informing the affected users if their personal data has been lost. So at that point, the consumer shouldn't need to do anything. They should know that they've been impacted by a data breach and the actions that they may or may not need to take. If that hasn't happened and you believe you're impacted, you should get in touch either with the Information Commissioner's Office directly to understand whether they've been notified, whether they need to start investigating, which then leads to potential fines under GDPR for talking about personal data for the impacted companies, or reach out to the company directly, perhaps in the first instance, if you want to take a slightly nicer approach and say, look, do you use MoveIt? Have, have I been impacted? I think I've been impacted because of this reason. Can you tell me what data has been lost? And they should get back to you in a relatively quick fashion under your rights as a consumer. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. And here, I don't know if you've got anything to add on that at all, but if not, then we can move on to the next topic. Yeah, just a sort of call to understand the data that might be held, right? If obviously Zealous being one of the biggest providers here, working with payroll information, that's a very sort of different risk profile to um, you know some other type of organization. The data that, that's going to be held on you is sort of key here to how concerned you need to be as a consumer. Payroll, you know, name, address, national insurance number. Yeah, that's pretty impactful. 
but move it's not just used for payroll right it's any sort of data and file transfer so you know there's every chance that it could just be a username and an email address that's less impactful but obviously they should still like you know so when the organization reaches out to you work out what what sort of stuff they're going to hold on you and that should give you a steer as to how concerned and what actions you need to take going forward okay yeah so i suppose naughty level tiny bits of information severe level photocopies of passports and driving license any id related stuff that kind of thing, bank statements all that kind of interesting things from a data theft perspective all right guys i think that probably wraps up the move it piece for now it's obviously a, a change in well i suppose the, the vulnerability itself is not necessarily changing but the, the amount of companies that are finding out they've been affected is changing so for the people listening i would encourage some vigilance i guess in that space just keep an eye on what's going off keep your ears open for things and have a look out for any indicators that you think might be leading towards or pointing towards a, a compromise happening. We'll move on to the next topic of this month's uh, briefing, which is around the um, the latest iOS spyware kit. So this is it's, it's named Triangulation Spyware or Triangular DB. I think is, is one of the one of the com- other companies that's investigating it have called it. And the high level information is essentially that there's potentially we don't know the age of these, but potentially quite old exploits that are, are valid against right up to the very latest version of iOS uh, devices, they're now known about. So whether they've been you know, known about in certain circles and certain agencies and so on and so forth for a long time and have been actively used, but not out in the public realm, or whether they've just recently been discovered and now in the public realm, we're not quite clear on yet. But they are pretty big-hitting uh, vulnerabilities affecting iOS devices, um, all the way up to some of the latest ones, notwithstanding the latest patch that covers this off. And they're now being chained together, and they are used in an active spyware campaign, let's say. Most importantly, the one that we're going to, well, the, the one that we're talking about here, the triangulation one, in, includes a zero interaction device compromise attack. So they're not necessarily for have a, a user, user interacting with it to basically get a foothold on the device, and then therefore you can then start to do some stuff. Before we dive into the, the technical detail, I want to just bring it back a little note and ask Hugh to comment on what is mobile spyware. So what do we mean when we talk about spyware in the context of a mobile device? And for a, a user, what's the impact to them of spyware being on their device? So broadly speaking, it's, it's, you know, it's relatively similar to um, you know, a normal Windows desktop with some differences in, in how they operate. So on you know, mobile devices, Android, iOS, Applications are all sandboxed. Everything is sort of containerized and run individually to stop data from, you know, moving from one application to another, which you don't get across all your all your desktop estate. So this spyware also has to be able to break out of that sandbox and access other applications' data if that's what it wants to do. But you know, these are devices that we we carry everywhere with us, right? So your location, all your messages, your call history, the apps you're using, how long you're using them for, the data you're putting into them. All of this is really valuable stuff that is going to be um, you know, captured by mobile spyware, but valuable in a very different way to what we would see in, in desktop land, right? In desktop land, it's going to be your spreadsheets. It's going to be files and folders and applications that you're using for work, things that are valuable like that. Whereas in mobile land, it's very much data on, on you. Yeah, you can still access some of your corporate resources there, but it are these things that tie you to that information. Like I said, you know, your messages, your location, um, calls and things like that. So that's the sort of contrast there. Okay, thank you. And uh, just as a follow-on question, how does spyware, how can it get onto a device itself, a mobile device? What's the kind of mechanism for that to happen, generally speaking? 
Yeah, so the vast majority of mobile exploits require this level of interaction, right? Whether that's downloading something onto the device, sideloading applications, jail if you jailbreak your device, that's sort of uh, you know a gateway for this. Jailbroken device is obviously much easier to, to then get spyware and things on. But then you know, the specifically the case we're talking about here, as you said, it's a zero click exploit, right? There is no involvement from the end user. And indeed in this case, no further follow-on indicator of compromise. You pick up your phone 10 minutes after it's been compromised and you wouldn't even know that. Obviously, that's hugely powerful, but this sort of attack is much less common, right? This is a very highly skilled you know, attack, probably developed by nation states. This isn't just something that anyone could go away and develop. You know, it's, it's, they're, they're much less common. But obviously, as I discussed, you know, there is a lot further impact, especially when these things are then able to escape those sandboxes. I'm going to bring you into this one here now. Um, we've heard about how, generally speaking, spyware gets onto a mobile device. But what's the what's the attack chain here in this instance? So we talk about triangulation spyware. How does it work and what's the various stages of the attack itself? The initial vector is actually a malicious iMessage that attachment that gets delivered to a phone. And then from that initial iMessage attachment, there are some uh, droppers that add the, the malware onto the device. So you would have, I think there are three exploits that were leveraged. There are two kernel exploits and a WebKit vulnerability exploit. And once the, the dropper has deployed the malware onto the device, the interesting thing that happens here is it only runs in memory. So there's nothing being written onto the file system. It's all running in the device memory. So the random access memory, the stuff that gets deleted when you switch off the device or occasionally, you know, it's a much, it's much more difficult to detect things that are happening in memory versus on the file system is, is why one of the reasons it might run in memory. So the, the key thing is that if you reboot your device, it has to actually be reinfected. But that doesn't really matter for this particular malware because as Hugh and Nick, you both said, it's a zero interaction piece of malware. So all you'd have to do is resend another iMessage with another payload, reinfect that device. And what's really interesting is when it infects the device, it gains root access to the phone. So it can delete that iMessage immediately. So it's very difficult for you as an end user to even know that you've been infected because the evidence of receiving that iMessage disappears very quickly. The other interesting thing about this particular malware is it's self-deleting after 30 days. So once you've had your phone on for 30 days, if you haven't rebooted it, it will delete itself. Whilst it's activated as well, it, it does have capability to talk to C2. Uh, it serializes data through, uh, I think, protocol buffers, which is a Google protocol, a bit like JSON data. And it periodically pings out to that C2 to let you know that that device is still infected. So it's actually a very complex piece of malware, quite an um, efficient and stealthy approach to infecting a device compared to a lot of spyware. Indeed, yes. It's uh, relatively scary, actually, you know, all said and done. What can this particular piece of, just a very quick kind of list, Aaron, what, what can this particular piece of spyware do? What kind of data can it gather and, and transmit back to base? Yeah, well, fundamentally, you know, it gains full access over the device. So the short answer is anything. But in particular, what has been seen is that it's the, the functions of the malware are typically collecting things such as your location. They're looking at the processes that are running, the files that are being opened and closed, various things around the, the keychain. So if you lock your device and then unlock it, some of the keychain gets unlocked with, with iOS. And what the malware does is it hooks into that and then grabs those keychains so they can be exported out to the command and control. The one thing that's really interesting as well is the malware has provision for regexes, so regular expressions that let you customize exactly what it's looking for. 
So you can very quickly, as the attacker, search for specific files that might be on the device or particular things that are happening. So it's very tailorable to a particular deployed device, which is a really interesting and somewhat unusual thing to see in these malware. It's not generic. It allows targeted customization of what the malware is doing. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, Hugh, just going to bring you in there and ask, should business be worried? So the business is now thinking to mobile devices, someone's, someone's personal phone. But should a business now be worried about this attack? Yeah, absolutely. Now that we know, well, that the, the details have been published, right? The organized crime groups are going to focus their efforts heavily on using this. So while it's only nation state at the moment, whether that continues to be the case as of speaking now or not, we don't know. Absolutely. Once these folks have got a working exploit, you know, it's going to be open season for them. Um, yeah, definitely one to be concerned about. Okay, thank you. Um, Aaron, I'm just going to bring you back in. What steps should organizations now take with their company mobiles? What's the kind of immediate steps to go away and, and do off the back of this this briefing? Yeah, the first thing to do is make have a look at what mobile devices are across your network. In particular, in this case, we're looking at Apple devices and in particular, iOS devices. Apple have released patches now for the exploits and vulnerabilities as of the 21st of June, so about a week ago. So obviously, once you know what devices you have on your network, roll out patches. There's obviously, you, you can do that as part of your regular patching cycle. Maybe you've already got a you know, five, seven-day grace period or something, and patches are automatically applied to your corporate devices. But if not, now's the time to think about enforcing a mandatory patch because the set of um, vulnerabilities, this exploit chain is, as has been said, it's, it's sort of nation-state level. It's very interesting. Now that the knowledge of this is out there, we're probably going to see it weaponized by organized crime quite quickly. So organizations need to get ahead of the curve and patch their mobile devices as soon as possible. Okay, so I think to facilitate that, company-wide communications will be quite handy, I think, at this point. So, hey, send out to wider team security notification. Please update any Apple devices you've got at this point in time, iOS, for example. So there's the things that you can do immediately now is, is along those lines and start to mandate through MDM, any other kind of mechanism you've got for enforcing patches uh, along those lines. And um, just as a follow-on question, Aaron, what about organizations that don't have corporate mobile devices? They might have a, a BYOD policy. Should they be concerned, not concerned? You know, what's their kind of stance on, on things at that point? Yeah, they should be. And it's it's an age-old debate, isn't it? Managed versus unmanaged BYOD, or do we even allow BYOD for our organization? It's always something worth discussing internally to see what your risk appetite is. What are you comfortable with in terms of BYOD? I know we, we've discussed it on this podcast many times. It's a never-ending debate. What I would say is be aware that this particular exploit, it affects practically every iPhone device from um, six onwards, most of the iPads from third generation onwards, Apple Watches. So it is really broad. And so you need to start thinking about actually, if we do allow BYOD, even if we limit the access that a BYOD device has to the network, perhaps we need to start considering separation of the enterprise account, the business account and the personal account. So with Apple, you can do that through Apple's business manager. Android Enterprise allows you to do it as well for Android devices. So think about even if you are allowing BYOD, separating out work and personal accounts. The other interesting point on that, though, is that won't fully stop this attack on its own. Because if you say, let's say your, your work profile is safe, the data is protected from the attack. Well, actually, that user's personal side could still be infected by this malware and things like the location information. So if you're working in a sensitive site, especially if you're thinking government, military, critical national infrastructure, those sorts of employees, if they've got a personal device they also use for work, even with a work profile, that personal profile is compromised, then the attacking organization or the nation state can view that um, location information. 
Okay, so it's like um, advanced open source, well, advanced sourcing, I guess, to, to an extent, or information gathering, collecting metadata. So I guess you can figure out who works at which interesting facilities, who they've got friends with, who the family is, who they see regularly, who they work with, so on and so forth, if you've got all that right level of access and visibility on the, on the geolocation side. Good. Okay, so an interesting set of things. Uh, just to, to recap, update your iOS devices pretty promptly, send out notifications and, and communications to the wider organization. Probably wouldn't like, sound like freak out at this point in time because it still looks like it's been used predominantly by nation-states threat actors at this point, and they're realistically going to be targeting more, I suppose, high-profile, interesting people, you know, people of, of note, noteworthiness, uh, possibly. Um, so average shows like those three, probably probably not at this stage. Who knows? Maybe. maybe. Um, but, yeah, so I guess they're the kind of high-level um, piece of advice, and there's still time to get ahead of this um, at this point in time as well. Just before we finalise and finish up this, this episode, I'll just come around to the guys. So, Hugh, I don't know if you've anything further to add to this particular piece and if not then we can say goodbyes for this episode no it's just you know we've spent we spent half an hour talking about these two really interesting items and you know it's it's one line right it's patch it that's really the main takeaway for for both of these the impacts are wide-ranging and, and very different but you know the the, the steps to take are, are very similar here yeah good, good recap and aaron any final thoughts from yourself yeah, perhaps a slightly different one, a bit of a personal opinion here, really, I suppose, and a bit of speculation. So this iOS exploit in particular, Russia have said it was the NSA that uh, released it. And it actually, it got me thinking, and it, to me, it's a little bit reminiscent of the the days when we harken back to WannaCry, so the Microsoft Windows exploits that happened. And actually, I get the feeling in the back of my head that this was a really big set of exploits that a nation state maybe it was the US, maybe it wasn't, have been using for quite some time, 2019, apparently, this has been in action for, and that uh, it's been burned a little bit now, you know, this exploit's now out there in the wild. And then that led, in the case of 2016 era, that led to things like WannaCry, once the, the NSA's toolchain were leaked, organized crime got hold of it, started developing their own exploits, and then we had a massive wave of attacks across the uh, the industry. We may or may not see something a bit similar with a bit of a Wild West for iOS devices now that this exploit chain with these you know, zero-click exploits being in the wild, yes, they've got patches, but people that haven't updated their iPhones or are in out-of-support operating systems, we may start to see a, a bit of a, a, a rise in um, targeted attacks against these devices as organized crime start to leverage these exploits. It's quite an interesting one for me. It didn't hit the news as much as I was expecting, but maybe there's more to come off the back of this particular set of exploits files. Indeed it is. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, and thank you very much, Hugh. Some really good insights and advice as always. And the headline from this is uh, patch all the things. So thanks both. Um, see you in a, a month's time and we'll chat through whatever's happened between now and then. Um, thanks everyone and see you all in a month's time. Thank you. Thanks all. Bye.